The Dime is sponsored by ETH Revolution. The cannabis industry has unique challenges, which means you need a multifaceted partner to help you navigate the landscape. ETH Revolution has a team of experienced science and business experts to provide a unique analytical approach, providing services from capital to cannabinoid and everything in between. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is my right-hand man, Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Robert Beasley, CEO of Consortium that does business as Fluent. Robert, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I am great. Thank you for having me on. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Really excited to talk to a couple more East Coasters today. (laughs) So, Robert, before we dive in, I'd love to get a little background about you and how you got into the cannabis space. Well, like a lot of uh, folks that have entered into this space, I was a frustrated lawyer. Um, I had a full-time practice in commercial litigation and real estate development and became involved in the early days of the constitutional amendment guidance in Florida when the Amendment 2 was being passed, then proceeded to track into the legislative process and then the regulatory process, assisting clients with the more legal technical issues of applications and um, uh, guidance and so forth. Uh, ultimately, I ended up on the boards of uh, a board of one of the first MMTCs in Florida and made my way through that to be the chairman of the board and then brought that company through its early days of development with processing, packaging, and retail. And we ultimately sold that uh, company to Africa, which is now Liberty. And so from there, I went out to develop other cannabis businesses throughout the United States in Oregon, California, and Washington, D.C. But it was the same thing. Someone had received or an investor group had received the ticket, and now they needed to turn it into a business. Uh, and so I was kind of becoming known as the startup guy, helping these startups get on the ground and off the ground. And then was asked in January of 20, December of 19, to come in with to Fluent and do a different role, which was more of a consultant role in um, helping the company pull wings up and nose up and, and get back in the game. So having performed that role now, um, I guess I'm now a, a startup guy and also a salvage guy. So we've uh, taken the Fluent company from where it was to great heights now, and I'm very proud of our progress over the last year and a half. What was one of the biggest challenges that you've seen in the growth of Fluent? And then let's dive into kind of what Fluent is. So Fluent is a, a multi-state operator, and that's 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 the first thing to know about one of its biggest challenges. And its challenges and the condition that I came into uh, was not really that different from MedMen or some of the other entities. You know, in the early pioneer days, it was a race for footprint. It was a race for licenses. So Fluent, like others, you know, they were originally awarded the Knox license in Florida, one of the first seven. Big deal, big award. And then they went out and, and got a Texas license and then a Michigan license and then a couple of Pennsylvania licenses then a Puerto Rico license. And so they end up in a state having run this race of being what I call 100 miles wide and one inch deep, you know, being spread out so thin. Capital is very hard to come by in this market, although it's getting better in this sector. And so not able to be in a position to invest vertically in their assets to develop them out. So what we did was we pulled back to the essential core footprint, uh, what the money makers were, where the big markets were, Florida being the premier market, and then started investing vertical in the company instead of being so horizontal. And that, you know, big picture shift change, that's really the heart of it. And many, many companies found themselves in that same circumstance. They had more licenses and more potential than they had assets to develop. Uh, and capital to develop. 
And I just want you to expand for our listeners that are unfamiliar. Can you expand on horizontal versus vertical from an investment standpoint? Sure. So in the context I was just using it, horizontal meant breadth of coverage, meaning number of licenses and number of states. You know, MSO means multi-state operator. And to be a MSO, you have to be in more than one state. And so that was the early pioneer goal of these companies was to go get that next license so that they were um, in more states. So you can achieve that and it takes capital and time and effort to get that license. But the license is just a piece of paper. And then from there, you've got to do the hard work, which is you, know, you got to build a cultivation center. You've got to build a processing center. You've got to build a retail. Whatever your licensing allowed you to do, you've actually got to actually do it, which is a lot harder sometimes than being the lucky winner of a license. So that's the vertical versus horizontal concept I was talking about in that context. Typically, that those phrases are used in the context of the type of licensing that is available in a state. Some states allow entry points into the market at other stages, like you can just retail, or you can just process, or you can just grow. Some states, like Florida and Texas, are truly vertical, and that's where you hear that word used most often, meaning that we do it all. Um, literally, in Florida, we grow the plant and we sell the final product from cradle to grave, seed to sale, as they call it. And so we're responsible for every step of the process, and we can't sub any of it out. And that makes it very difficult because it's one of the few industries that I know of, and maybe the only industry, where we are an agricultural company, we're a chemical manufacturing company, we're a processing and packaging company, we're an advertising company, we're a marketing company, we're a retail company, and we also are a logistics company to support all the movement of those steps that I just told you. So it makes it very, very complicated and highly regulated and very capital intensive. And I'm glad you shared that. And Kellen, I want you to expand on that because a bunch of times we've talked about as a vertical integration company, you're essentially like Robert described, you're all these companies in one. So kind of specializing one makes it even more challenging. Kellen, kind of expand on that. <laughs> I'm just laughing because Robert, you literally almost said exactly what I was going to say verbatim as far as vertical integration goes. I mean, running an, an agricultural centric business requires a completely different set of operators versus a chemical business versus a retail location. I mean, it's it's pretty wild in terms of how all of those departments have to play together. And then you add to the fact that you guys are not only doing it in Florida, but you're also doing it in, in other locations as well. So how do regulations and those kind of challenges from state to state affect that vertical integration model? You have two components of that. You have the regulations themselves. And, and of course, we have a, a developed a regulatory compliance department, a legal department, if you would. And and every person has their own um, specialty. So we have a Michigan person, a Pennsylvania person, and, uh, and so forth. And so, um, you know, the rules are different. They are somewhat similar in many aspects. Um, a lot of the testing protocols are similar. A lot of the ways of seed to sale tracking, uh, while the software may be different, the concept is the same. But what sometimes we see is, is the most difference is the regulatory attitude that we face. For instance, Michigan. Michigan is um, either understaffed or under-motivated from a regulatory point of view. Um, they're just not that interested in helping out the industry or really even policing the industry, which causes this massive influx of illegal activity, illegal products, very, very slight regulation. They're not doing their job. And when they don't do their job, they don't protect the market, which means we've got capital outlaid that we don't get the returns on because the pricing isn't what we thought it would be because of all the illegal product. 
So you go from there down to Florida. Florida's they're doing their job. They're enforcing. They've got a robust enforcement group. They also have a very cooperative um, administrative group for things like variances and so forth. Um, move that over to Texas DPS of Texas. Very small program, three licenses. Um, those guys are actively helping us every day, trying to help us get our businesses off the ground, get a viable economic model. They want success. Um, and so we almost have a partner in Texas with the regulators to try to help us navigate. Whereas Florida, they're regulating us, but they're doing a good job. And then Michigan, they're not doing anything. Pennsylvania, um, you know, they're an understaffed department. And so getting things like advertising, here's an example, very strict advertising rules in Pennsylvania to open a store, everything you say and do and put to the press has to be approved. But their process of approving, it takes a while. And you got to keep calling and asking, when is it going to get done? Well, in the meantime, I've got a store that opened that is completely unsupported by advertising. Uh, it's what we call a soft opening in the business, but you usually don't have a two month long soft opening. And so, you know, I can't get my regulatory partners to understand that I need this stuff approved so that people know where I'm at and what I'm selling. So you have a variety of environments that are different, but not necessarily different because the rules are different. They're different because the posture and staffing capabilities of the agency are different. Which just adds to another layer of complexity and the challenges that face on a day-to-day basis. So when you're staffing those positions, are you putting somebody in a higher macro role overseeing certain verticals, or are you putting them in specifics and saying, hey, you're in charge of X for Michigan and, and Y for Florida? So for compliance point of view, um, the chief legal officer um, of our company has within his department um, other lawyers that are assigned and tasked with knowing what the Michigan rules say. So when I want to know whether we can do something in Michigan, you know, there's someone on the phone there that says, I know these Michigan rules and so forth. We also have local counsel if it's a zoning matter or so forth. But from a operations point of view, each of the operations have a kind of a person in charge on the ground. And so usually have an interaction between them to legal at headquarters, then it gets to my office at headquarters. Do you guys see a significant um, operational differences from like Michigan, which is an adult use state versus Florida, which is medical market? I mean, fundamentally, are you guys running the, the businesses the same or are there and there's just kind of like slight nuances that um, change from the medical to the adult use market? So, you know, you mentioned how um, our business is divided in a vertical scenario in sectors. Um, and so I can answer that question by sector. So in the agricultural base aspect, it is different because it's different climates, different growing environments. Even within Florida, we have three facilities in Florida. Each of the facilities has their own facility manager. And those facilities are organisms. Things are a little bit different from facility to facility, how they do things, because you've got different environmentals. When you take a facility in Florida and then compare it to the one in Michigan, totally different environmentals. Um, you know, up there, they got to worry about frost. Florida never has a frost. There's all kinds of, so agricultural practices are different, but that's being driven by the environment. The next step, which is processing, not all that different. You know, how you extract the equipment you're using, the resulting products a flower stream versus a um, oil stream is all kind of the same. Then when you get to the retail arm, it's again, a little different. In uh, those states, which are non-vertical, you have entry at the retail level of wholesalers where our shelves may stock, for instance, in Pennsylvania, our shelves may stock a Cresco product. It may stock a a pyramid or cure leaf product along with our own products. Um, Whereas in Florida, it's just fluent products. I appreciate you highlighting that. So before we dive into some of the more of the specifics in the Florida market, 
obviously no day is ever the same, but from hundred percent, if you were going to chunk your day into percentages on, on how you spend your day and responsibilities, can you kind of break that down for us? Sure. You know, it's kind of like a speech I just gave to some of the managers the other day, which is, you know, you, you handle plants and stuff until you get to a certain level of management and you handle more people than you do stuff and processes. And by the time you get to my level, you're mostly all handling people. And so I manage by consulting and giving uh, directives and taking input from teams. Um, and those teams are representative of any one of the components. Um, this morning, I've had, this is my fifth Zoom of the morning. And this morning, the Zooms called someone from processing and packaging on um, uh, methodologies of segregation. Cure Relief in Florida just messed up by getting some not tested product on the market that had mold and they had to recall it. And it's a terrible embarrassment for them. They've had to recall some product because of the mold. But honestly, it was a very easy, simple mistake that we could have made. Uh, And so I spent an hour or two this morning with those teams understanding how we can do better and not be on the news for selling out product that wasn't tested yet. Um, You know, nothing is a very easy, simple mistake that has big consequences. So um, my day is spent sitting in on meetings where teams that are prepared to propose solutions Um, And sometimes I'm just that final decision. Uh, You know, ultimately, I take recommendations from those who know and I make the decision. And the way I talk about it is I decide because if it's a total disaster, it's my fault. If it's a total heroic uh, uh, win, it's your your compliment. So after that, what I do is I I talk to investor groups. You know, we are publicly traded. We have uh, many stakeholders that want to know. A lot of those stakeholders are active because they hold large percentages and they feel entitled and privileged, and they are entitled and privileged to call the CEO and ask him some questions. Um, I have to be very careful about not releasing material, non-public information, because we um, only do that at the quarters. But, you know, the creative investors that are in the business, they can ask a bunch of questions and try to get themselves uh, a little bit more confidence in what's going on. So I do a lot of investor relations. And then I do a lot of brand uh, awareness and um, advertising for the brand fluent, like this podcast. I do interviews and podcasts and talk about the brand and talk about the market. So let's talk about the Florida market. What would you say is the current state of the Florida medical market? So it's still developing. Um, It still has lots of room to grow. There is a current patient slowdown um, as far as new patients. Um, And we hit that 600,000 mark and it's been slowed around the hill. And that is because we haven't had a legislative driver to bring new patients in. There are plenty of additional extra patients out there in Florida that are potential patients that have not come to the market. But what we saw was, you know, you had uh, low THC to high THC. That was a big driver. Then flour came on board. Then edibles came on board. And every time the government or the regulators released some component of the industry um, to provide additional services or conditions or whatever, we, we had a, a wave of new patients in. DOH has been silent on that for some time. We haven't done anything from a regulatory point of view that was newsworthy that caused an additional patient group to come back are to come to the market. So that's why you have the patient slowdown. But the market is very robust, very active. And so the demand is still there. Now, on the supply side, you know, in the last 12 months, we've seen the bigger MSOs come in and buy up some little guys. We're in a consolidation period. Um, Those bigger companies have more capital to put on the ground. They are all in expansion mode right now. We're not yet seeing the effect of that in the market in the pricing of the market, although there was recently a discount war we can talk about. Um, but that wasn't really anything more than um, an instance we can talk about. But but, we're, but we will start to see increased pricing competition 
increased product availability as far as types of products. You know, the Florida market will be, the consumer will be better served in the next 24 months than they are now with store uh, availability. I mean, I, you know, some of these guys, the Bluma purchased by Cresco, they're coming in strong. They're going to put however many stores on the ground in the next 12 months. And so folks who don't have a store nearby will probably have one in, in a year from now. So that's going to help the consumer across the board. So pricing will start to inflect down a little, but not a lot, honestly. The fact is, is that we're all doing it the same way. You can talk about who does good and who does bad, but the results of the regulations overlaid on the environment, overlaid on the cost and efficiencies, we're pretty much all doing it the same way. And it costs us pretty much all the same cost. So there is a, uh, a point where um, you know, we're not going to sell it for less than we make it for. And so there's a limit to that price decline. Um, there will be an adjustment that benefits the consumer, but it w- will not continue to go down forever. Kellen, share some more information on the Florida market. I know you've done some research there from a pricing standpoint. Kind of expand on it. I just uh, want to take one moment and highlight what Rob said, that they'll never sell anything for less than they make it. I think that's brilliant business advice, honestly. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, But yeah, the price war is a thing. Happens in every single state, from my experience. Where my mind goes is... Yeah, there's different strains of cannabis. And, and like Rob said, that they're all kind of following the, the same recipe as far as trying to generate the, the highest quality material for the least amount of capital. So with everyone kind of running towards the same finish line, how do you separate yourself from the pack, Robert? There's a lot of things that, that do that. First of all, new and innovative products. Florida is a very young consumer market. This may be stale data, but our patient age was 53, average patient age, and they were new timers to cannabis. And so, whereas when you go out West and you look at the patient market that there in the quasi-medical California market when it was, you know, a lot of those were traditional cannabis users now coming into the system and, and adopting it for medical use, but their daily consumption didn't change much. They just went from buying it illegally to buying it legally, whereas our patients are a lot of times this is their first experience with this medicine known as cannabis. And so they're young consumers, um, inexperienced consumers, but now we're educating them. And what we're doing is the competition is telling this consumer, Hey, you know, it's not all about THC because right now THC sells in Florida. THC always sells in a young market, but when the competition comes in and you get a cookies and jungle brothers and those guys, jungle boys, I'm sorry. And those guys come in, and they're like, hey, 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 it's not about all THC. Look at these other qualities of the plant. Look at these other, you know, let's talk about cannabinoids, let's talk about terpenes. And so all of a sudden the consumer starts being told what they should be looking for. And then they become more savvy. And that's the direction everything's heading in. And so, you know, True Leave, you know, True Leave was just massive in quantity and really mediocre in quality. My very first report to the Fluent Board, the very first month I was on the job was, we sell a mediocre quality and quantity product. Those are the facts. Good news, so does everyone else. And so we're right in the market, but that's going to have to change. And that's going to be the movement. It's going to be an interesting dynamic where pricing settling down, the quality is going up. And then we're talking about quality more. Um, and that's really in the flower industry. And then with respect to the other products, there's lots of new innovative products that have not yet been on the Florida market. Um, as we roll those out, for instance, we've got this uh, pre-packed three and a half uh, gram pipe right now, a little glass pipe that is just flying off the shelves. 
convenience. It's not a pre-roll, but it has the convenience of a pre-roll. Um, we discovered this, this product from, from another vendor and uh, we're the only ones offering it. Now we've got that edge, right? We're going to sell that product and people are going to come in for that product. So those are a couple of the re- ways that you stay competitive. Was your board surprised when you, when you told them that message about the quality of the, of the product? You know, I made sure that I followed it with it's okay because everyone else is, but um, it was a hard message and it was meant to be delivered for the impact that it had because what I was doing was advising on the current status of our company versus where we needed to go. Uh, and so it wasn't so much to be uh, derogative towards our company's products or anybody else. It was just, here's where we are in the market. And I always compare it to alcohol. When you start out first legally able to drink, no one drinks before they're legally able, um, your energy level is fireball shots, tequila shots, high, high octane stuff. You're all about uh, potency, you know, jello shots, you know. Then later, you know, you're, you're drinking beer, but you maybe try a craft beer and really focus on quality over quantity. Then, you know, by the time you get my age, you're a red wine drinker or maybe a nice scotch, but you just want a glass. You don't need to drink the whole bottle for your night to be a success. That is the same evolution that you see in cannabis when you come into a young market. We are still in THC cells, but we are coming out of it now. We're, we're maturing in the market. So when we talk about maturing, are we using data sets from uh, previous sales? Let's say if Leaf's product in, in Michigan, for example, like you were saying before, is selling really well in a certain product form and you know it might hit a specific demographic here in Florida, is that one that Fluent might look to integrate into their portfolio? Or how do you do about the development of the information and then moving it forward from market to market? So, you know, the winds blow in cannabis from the west to the east, um, and then they, they blew to the northeast first across the top of the country, and then the southeast is still the last frontier now. You know, we have many southern states that don't even have a program yet, but their yeah. legislation's in process. So we look out west at what's coming down the line. We were just at MJ Biz out in Vegas. You're looking at what's going on, you know, go to Planet 13, see their concepts, see their product lines see what's happening out there. And so that's what we look to, not necessarily our other stores, but that Western market. But here's the problem. It doesn't evolve as fast as you can drive or fly from California to Florida. And that's the that's where a lot of these California brands are really, it really breaks their heart. I mean, you know, I talk to them and they tell me how they're going to do this thing in Florida. And I tell them they're not going to, uh, that the thing they're doing in Florida isn't ready for yet because they flew over here on a plane, but the market didn't come that fast. And so you can look at that as an example of where you're headed. But then the trick is, what's the pathway between here and there? How do we bring those customers along? How do we get them acquainted to this product? Because I can throw a Western product, a California product on my shelves, and it flies off the shelves out West and it doesn't move here because they're not ready for it. They haven't been educated to accept it yet. And so that's the big trick. How do we educate people to accept that? It's going to come through the competition. You know, I used uh, Jungle Boys uh, and, and Cookies, and I'm not sure what's going on with Cookies, but, you know, Cookies rolls in here. You know, you hear the name Cookies. Well, if I'm a Florida consumer that just tried cannabis for the first time, and, you know, and literally this is a real example, I brought a note from my pastor to make sure that it was okay that I try cannabis because it's the devil's weed. Cookies are a, are a dessert to me, right? They, it means nothing to me. But when the advertising and the word gets out that there's this aspect of cannabis that is a quality step, 
that is uh, whatever, you know, and maybe I try it, you know, maybe I go, well, let me try this thing. And I'm not trying to advertise cookies in this podcast. But I'm just using it as an example of a Western brand that moved East. You know, there's nothing particularly unique about what they're doing, except they're growing a different profile, but I'm not ready for that profile yet, unless I'm told that I should try it. It's about consumer awareness. And so the competition is going to do it. We're going to say, hey, try this thing we're doing. And then someone else is going to say, hey, we're doing that thing too. You should try ours. And then together we push each other up in uh, in consumer awareness. We'll send Burner a bill for the podcast. For the <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I know he's much respected in the industry and I, I've got no issues with him. I just know that you know it's not as quick of a spin up as, as people expect it to be. Cookies is a really unique brand too, especially for like the Florida demographic. Like when I think of Florida, like my grandparents used to live in Florida. Like I think of a lot of like, kind of the older generation that settled down. And like, like you said, like, I mean, I don't have the sweet tooth I had in my 20s. So I imagine that it does not, it continues to trend that way. So um, it sounds like a hard brand to even push in like a, an older population. Um, that's just my two cents though. I've met with many, many brands from out West. And, and like I said, it's, I feel like I, I I feel like I break up with my girlfriend every time I do that because I really I really hurt their hearts uh, because they are really keen on their brands and you know good gracious they've made a ton of money off their brands all they had to do was stick their brands out there and it was readily absorbed and they've got a great product and then when they look at me and I say it's not going to work here people don't know you and they don't care um, because we don't have multiple brands on our shelves they walk into our store it's all fluent and that's because it's required to be all fluent. And I had one gentleman, one young man who, you know, made a million dollars out West. He said, well, that's because y'all aren't using any billboards. You don't even know how to use billboards in Florida. I said, I, you know, Florida's got a lot of billboards. You probably should take note of the fact that it's illegal for us to use them. So, you know, when you come from out West to Florida, you're going to follow the same rules we do. You're going to get in the same box that we do, which means white label products, no colors, no, no artificial colors, no artificial uh, labels, you know. You're going to sell your stuff in the same white box I'm selling mine in. And now what are you going to do? So that's why branding doesn't follow yet. The game becomes a little more challenging when some of the, the rules are a little more tighter. And as you were saying perfectly, the West Coast, they're, they're used to a different kind of set of skills and rules to play by. And when they come to the new markets, it's a little surprising sometimes for them because the adoption is just a little more uh, different. That's right. So let- and the news, the bad news for them is all the southeastern states are going to do the same. They're all going to be tight. They're all going to be really restrictive. And so, you know, the catchy logos and everything may not pass. It's good for the for the industry as a whole. You know what I mean? It's at least it helps stick change the culture of stigma. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a win, right? That's what I, I chalk it up as a win because we're playing the long game. So to get to get legislation passed in the southern states, you have to do a lot of compromises. And, and all of those compromises have to do with, you know, making it not recreational uh, pot and making it a drug, uh, making it a medicine. And so when you start stripping out all the recreational aspects, that's what you have to do to get it passed. You know, you don't have a choice. I mean, I don't have any sweet branding label on my uh, medicines I go pick up at the pharmacy. So... Right. You know what I mean? Like it's a it's the same orange bottle with a light label. It's not candy, it's medicine. That's right. Yeah. The rules we're all playing under. So let's let's continue on that conversation. How do you, Robert, balance, let's say, growth into new markets versus optimization into current markets? How, how do you balance that relationship? So when you grow into a new market, you have to understand what the challenges of that market are. Um, Texas is the best example. Uh, Texas has a very low patient registry right now. It was 5,000 people. I think it may be higher now. 
since the new legislation came through. And so when you think about that market, what does that mean? Well, you know, there's three licensees in Texas currently, but we could service five to 10,000 customers just with our facility. So, you know, there's, there's not enough people there that are actually participating in the program. So you got to think about, well, what do I've got to do there? I'm not about capturing market share. I'm about creating market share. So you go back old school Florida ways where you have these cannabis awareness days, you have these educational seminars, you hold banquets in the hotel lobbies and the hotel banquet rooms where you bring people in and go, let me teach you about this because you've got to learn. And here's the trick where you teach the consumers, you got to teach the physicians because they all have to go through a gatekeeper and you don't have a lot of physician buy-in in the early market. So you've got to touch that physician market, get them buying in, find out who your physicians are that are interested in being in the market because it's not a moneymaker for doctors. You're not going to have an orthopedic surgeon turned cannabis doctor unless it's commensurate with their retirement from the orthopedic surgery practice. It's non-insurable. It's cash pay. It's, it's limited on what the doctors can make, and it's very clinical in nature. So you've got to get the physician development first because they're the portal to get the customers in. You've got to think about, and that was just an example when you asked me, how do I break into a new market? Well, that's how I break into Texas. Other markets, it's more about product competition. Whereas development of your existing market right now has to do with footprint and production capacity. Historically, every market is underserved in production. Florida is the same as everyone else. We did not build enough grow space. And so that's what everyone's doing right now is expanding. If you can grow it, you can sell it. So you just got to figure out how to grow more. And so expanding in a market right now means expanding your production capability. And then continuing on that conversation, on the flip side, having the conversation with investors and letting them know that this is not going to be an immediate return on our cash investment in Texas. This is a long-term play. How does that communication go down? Because if you're reading the reports, you're seeing all these other states that are having booming sales numbers and something like Texas is a longer-term play. So how do you communicate information to your shareholders? So what I'd say about Texas is we have a plan to capture and build market share. It is not a plan to build revenues in the first couple of years. And that, you know, what I like to do is um, I actually like to reference what Truly did in Florida. You know, they they came out with a big cultivation footprint and they gained a bunch of market share, Um, but it wasn't that profitable. And then that market share volume turned into profit over time. You know, I want every new Texas patient to be a fluent patient because I need every one of them. And then if we continue to grow that program out there and that seven or 8,000 patients turns into 200,000 and I have 60% of them, now I'm making revenue. And so that's different. Now, in the states where we're increasing production, which has been the status we've been in for the last year, I have to very basically explain to the investors into the market that those plants do not care at all. They're going to grow as fast as they're going to grow, regardless of how many dollar bills I wave at them. Uh, And so the fact that I have investment money, I can't take that $100 bill and tease that plant to do anything different than what it's doing under the pathway that it's on. Um, And so that's just the reality of farming. Then I have the additional reality of constructing in this environment. So I've got to build it first. I've got to build it in an environment where the supply chain, regardless of what the president just said, the supply chain is severely impacted to get the materials we need in a specialized agriculture industry, which means pumps, fertigation supplies, tables, grow benches, cocoa to grow in cocoa. All that cocoa comes from Thailand and over there, which has got to get on a ship. Uh, And so, you know, I've got to beat the supply chain problem. I've got to beat the labor problem that COVID created, post-COVID created. And then I've got to grow plants that only grow as fast as they want to grow. 
how do you find the Goldilocks zone as far as the size of the facility to meet demands? Because it sounds like it could be pretty easy to maybe even overproduce as well. So overproduction is a specter that we've all talked about, but no one's experienced, you know, and what has happened is I talked about these legislative events that bring people to the table. There are more on the horizon. Um, I think in Florida, reciprocity, we could increase sales by 35, 40% on a reciprocity uh, amendment um, without adding one new Florida patient because reciprocity will allow all of those people that come to Disney World and to Tampa and to Miami and to Jacksonville, uh, which are a lot of folks um, who have cards in New Jersey and New York and wherever to go to our store. And so big change there. And then we haven't even talked about adult use. You know, we're two, four years out, depending what the governor election does, to opening up adult use on a 23 million population state that has an influx of another 20 million uh, seasonally. And so, you know, everybody comes to Florida to do something. Um, and when, when they come to Florida, we'd love them to have a good time enjoying cannabis when it's recreationally allowed. Um, so there is not a production limit problem right now. Goldilocks is an interesting phrase. You know, I get the pleasure of meeting and talking with other CEOs of other MSOs, some of which are much larger than us. And this industry's biggest problem is scalability. You know, when we first all started as pioneers coming into the business, we had to look to the technology, skills, and techniques of um, essentially those who ran illegal grows. But illegal grows had scale limitations. You know, when, when I talk to a quote grower, and, and I use those quotations often, every time I say the word grower, you know, I've got to decide, you know, were those growing techniques, were those 10 plants behind grandma's house out in the field? Or, you know, was that an indoor facility? And, you know, does it scale? And so I ask that grower every time, does it scale? Because I appreciate that you did that for 100 plants some time ago, and you had no market drivers, you had no stores to feed, you know, it just, it was ready when it was ready uh, and you'll sell no weed before it's time, but I'm running out 10,000 plants a week on a production schedule. Does it work for me? You know, is your special fish egg stew, can I run that at 20,000 gallons a day or do I run out of fish eggs? And so scalability is the jump. We all knew that. Those of us who are running 60, 80,000 square foot canopy spaces, we know that scalability is the killer. But now these guys are running two and 300,000 square foot canopy spaces and it's a whole different league. They've gone into a whole different ball game. They're not even using the same ball we're using. And um, they're running into all kinds of scalability problems because the techniques we use are now not working. Um, and so it's a scale jump issue. Nguyen has licenses and operations in Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Texas. All key, key states, but none are the more mature states such as California, Oregon, Denver. So is there a future state that you have got your, your eye on in the roadmap? Yes. That's a good answer. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I love that answer. <laughs> yeah, it was worth a swing, right? I had a couple in my mind, but I was I curious. told you I'm seasoned at talking to investors who want to know. I, I, wasn't, I, I wasn't looking for any proprietary breaking news. But I had a couple in my mind. I was wondering if you would check one of the boxes. So, uh, uh, since you've been in the cannabinoid industry, what has been the biggest misconception? So... Scale, I just mentioned that. I don't want to talk about it again, but that has been the biggest in the production area, which is these techniques and, and, and knowledge just doesn't scale up. The other is that uh, getting a license uh, gets you somewhere. You know, I, I all the time run into people that say, I'm really wanting a Florida license. And I'm like, no, you don't. I said, that's a $50 million ticket to that invites you to a $200 million problem. Um, you know, the 
you know, getting the license isn't the touchdown. It is the start of the game. Um, and, and folks just don't realize that all the work's ahead of them. Um, you know, I've talked to groups that are going to get a license and then they're going to do these things. And I just, I just get tired listening, um, to the pathway. When I think of the pathway that they have ahead of them, but they don't even know enough to know how tired they should be and looking at it. It is a highly regulated industry that's very capital intensive to do it at scale that is new and it's a frontier. And, you know, pioneers die on the trail side all the time. And, um, you know, we're the pioneers that are suffering. You know, I'd rather sit back a little bit. This comes into this social equity issue that I'm hearing a lot about. Really, if, if we want to have a good social equity movement, then it needs to be in the retail licenses because retail's pretty easy to come up to speed with a low capital investment. Um, I can buy wholesale, sell retail, go get me a store on the corner, um, put it on the shelves and make some money. It's, you know, lightly entering into this business. But, you know, what you don't want to do is burden a group with a full vertical license that they just really can't come up to speed on. Really well said. Before and we, we see pre- that, I mean, Florida's got multiple licenses that are not being used. And yeah. It's not because they don't want to make money. It's because it's, it's an awful big burden once you get that license. You're not just running one business. I think you did a really good job of expanding on just the complexity of the challenges of that because there really can't be a redundancy of the talent from one to the other. You really need specialized people across the board and, and finding that with the labor and the capital, it just the levels of challenges continue to, to pile up. Culturally, it's kind of a, an interesting brew. If you go down to like our facility, if one of our facilities, we grow and we produce, uh, we process. And so you have a bunch of growers um, with dreadlocks and tattoos and gauge earrings and a bunch of chemists all eating lunch together. Uh, it's, uh, it's a wild group to go in and talk to. <laughs> you can only imagine. <laughs> diversity though, right? It's, it's true diversity. True diversity. <laughs> if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass onto the next generation, what would it be? It's not an easy business. Vertical is the bigger challenge than people think but it is still very young. It is still a frontier business. There's still plenty of opportunities and maybe don't focus on being the license holder. Look at the ancillary industries that are spinning up related to this. You know, everything from packaging to fertigation techniques, um, software, um, you know, support this industry. If you can't get in at mainstream, think about how to support it. Um, you know, what are we doing with our soil? You know, how we're not recycling our soils. We're throwing them out. You know, you know, look for opportunities to enter this industry in an ancillary role um, if you can't be in the mainstream role because it is wide open. All right, prediction time. Florida or Pennsylvania, who goes adult rec first and when? Pennsylvania goes first. It is in the wave of those northern states that New York's flowing over. Pennsylvania has the politics to support it. The governor of Florida is not a supporter of the expansion of the program. The Department of Health in Florida has been very lethargic. You know, they should have already issued more licenses. They haven't. Florida is a much more contentious market. Pennsylvania goes first. Florida is 24 or later, depending on the governor race. When do you think Pennsylvania goes? Pennsylvania's, and you know, Next legislative session, it's already the the when and not the how or why uh, is already being discussed. And so I think it's a votes issue. Pennsylvania is a great market. Um, the consumers there are, they are very supportive of the market and it's got good economics, good regulatory concerns. Um, and it's just, it is ready. Pennsylvania is ready to go. Florida might not be. Kellen? 
Well, I mean, I think Pennsylvania is the obvious choice for everything that Robert said, as well as, I mean, they're going to, their hand is forced, right? With the tri-states area already having the ball rolled, rolling, right? I mean, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, they're all going to be legal. Philadelphia is right there in that corridor. I mean, I'm not from the East Coast, but I'm pretty sure Philadelphia is close, right? It's pretty close, right? To New York. Yeah. Close enough. Yeah. So I, I think their hands is, hand is forced. And there's a lot of big companies looking at Pennsylvania already. You know what I mean? I think that that's a, always a sign that they know something the general population probably isn't aware of when you see multiple MSOs purchasing uh, licenses and facilities in the medical market in the state. So that's my two cents. What, what are your thoughts, Brian? Robert, do you want to dive in there? Well, I was going to say that, that, you know, as an operator in multiple states, and one of the things that's recently come to me is I get a lot of questions from uh, staff positions in these states that are drafting their legislation. Um, Virginia, North Carolina, Alabama, I've talked to all of the legislative word makers there because they knew I was involved in the drafting of the legislation in Florida. So I have that, I have that background. And they ask me this one question every time, what state should we look to, to model after? And I, Pennsylvania is always on my list. The way they segregated their zones for licensing, for retail, without, allowed an even distribution, the way they titrated out the growth, they, they didn't do it perfect, but they did it right and right enough to get them ready for rec. And so it was just a good regulatory model. Why don't you think other states just follow models that are successful and that are done well versus just kind of taking a year and a half, two years to figure it out on their own? I'm talking about New York. politics. When I'm in Alabama's legislative discussion, I'm trying to decide what the difference between an agriculture business and a farm business is. And, you know, it's the people that are in an agriculture related business that sell fertilizer that really want to be eligible for the license. And so it's all politics. Yeah, something I'll, I'll never be able to actually understand, which I'm, I'm wondering if anyone actually does. It seems more complicated every single day. Um, so, Robert, for those who want to get in touch, they want to learn more about Fluent and your company. Where can they learn more? So we uh, website is getfluent.com. We have an investor page and a Q&A page there. You can send a, uh, send a question. Um, believe it or not, the investor question link, um, I'm copied on every one of them. Uh, and I try to distribute them in a way that uh, gets a good response. Um, we trade on the Canadian exchange under the ticker TIUM. The parent company is Consortium. And that is the publicly traded company, TIUM. It is also co-listed on the OTCQX which is the U.S. exchange. And so get out there and buy some stock um, if you believe in what we're doing. And, uh, and we hope to continue the upward trends we're on. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Robert. We appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.